Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us here this afternoon. Lord, I pray that you would bring clarity to this topic and that we would understand who the third person of the Godhead is. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, and we pray that the Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth, especially as we come to an understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So today is part two of our six-part seminar. Yesterday, the title was The Everlasting Son. We looked at the divine nature of Christ. We're going to look at the human nature later on this week, but we looked at the divinity of Christ yesterday, and we saw very clearly that he is self-existent, as Ellen White says. He's the pre-existent, self-existent Son of God that in him is life, original, unborrowed, underived. He is his own being, his own person. He always has been, um, along with the Father. And today we're going to look at the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. Now just briefly, I do want to mention again, for those of you who may be interested, I have written a book on the book of Daniel. It's being published by Remnant Publications. It should be coming out in the next few weeks. It's a verse-by-verse commentary. The entire book makes practical applications for the, the book, as well as going into a verse-by-verse analysis. So if you're interested in a deeper study of the book of Daniel, it's only about 150, 160 pages. It won't be too long, and it should give you plenty of information. So I want you to be on the lookout for that. Others wanted me to mention again this book on the Trinity that I've made reference to. And this is the picture of the book. This is the title of the book. It's written by an Australian pastor named Glenn Parfit. And it's entitled, The Trinity, What Has God Revealed? Objections Answered. Now, it comes out of Australia, but I believe it is available on Amazon. So if you want a good resource on the Trinity, that is an excellent resource. Okay, I'm going to get into the presentation. I'm going to show a couple of slides that I shared yesterday. Now, when I have done this presentation before, I've done the presentations back-to-back, so I didn't include the slides in both talks, but I am doing that here because I want to reiterate what I mentioned yesterday about the sinister nature of heresy and of every wind of doctrine and why God allows heresy to come into the church. This is Testimonies, Volume 5 of the Testimonies, page 707. And here it says, God will arouse his people. If other means fail, heresies will come in among them, which will sift them, separating the chaff from the wheat. The Lord calls upon all who believe his word to awake out of sleep. So what I can say from this statement is that one of the reasons why the anti-Trinitarian heresy has come into the Seventh-day Adventist Church is because we've been sleeping as a people. You know, we just come to camp meeting year after year and hear good messages, and we might even sing the song, I Surrender All, and we might even come forward on an altar appeal. And then when we go back home, guess what happens? Nothing changes. So God says, I'm going to wake you up. And he allows heresies to come in so that we will go back to the Bible, we'll go back to the Word of God, and we will come to a deeper understanding of the time that we're living in. And then she goes on to say, the um, precious light has come appropriate for this time. It is Bible truth showing the perils that are right upon us. This light should lead us to a diligent study of the Scriptures and a most critical examination of the positions which we hold. And as I mentioned yesterday, you know, some may say, what's the big deal? about people bringing variant views into the church on various doctrines, including the Trinity. Well, first of all, you know, the Trinity refers to the theology of the Godhead and of who God is. So I would at least be in agreement with anti-Trinitarians that it is a big deal how we understand God. I'll, I'll agree on that. How they define God, though, is the problem. And Galatians 5, as we looked at yesterday, we're going to see that heresy is a big problem. Galatians 5, 19-21, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies. And as I said yesterday, typically when a heresy comes to your church, 
the next thing that follows is strife. Heresy and strife go hand in hand, and they are both manifestations of the works of the flesh. Now, the other things on this list should be pretty obvious, like adultery and fornication. Now, I find it amazing, I didn't mention this yesterday, how many churches in the Seventh-day Adventist church turned a blind eye to adultery. Listen, friends, if you have someone in your church that has committed adultery, that needs to be addressed. That is a, a stain on your church. And if heresy comes into your church, that needs to be addressed. Souls will be lost if you just sit back and say, well, boy, this isn't good, but I mean, they are sincere and they are using the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. I mean, I realize that they don't think Jesus is God and they don't think the Holy Spirit is a person, but at least they're sincere and I don't want to hurt people's feelings and rock the boat, so we'll just kind of see what happens. No, you need to deal with it. This is the work of the flesh. And then it goes on to say in the end of verse 21, I told you, tell you before as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So a belief in heresy and an advocacy of heresy will lead souls to be lost. And then you see the contrast after the works of the flesh with the fruits of the Spirit in verses 22 and 23. So now I'm going to mention the Seventh-day Adventist fundamental belief on the Holy Spirit. This is fundamental belief number five. And this is how it is stated in the current fundamental belief statement of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. God, the eternal Spirit, was active with the Father and the Son in creation, incarnation, and redemption. He is as much a person as are the Father and the Son. He inspired the writers of Scripture. He filled Christ's life with power. He draws and convicts human beings. And those who respond, he renews and transforms into the image of God. Sent by the Father and the Son to be always with his children, he extends spiritual gifts to the church, empowers it to bear witness to Christ, and in harmony with the Scriptures, leads it into all truth. Now you see a number of references up there. We're going to hit some of these as we go through the presentation today. So... What I'm going to do now is I'm going to briefly review some of the things that anti-Trinitarians are teaching about the Holy Spirit. Yesterday we talked about what they say about Christ, how that he, they say he's not created, but they say he's begotten, that he came out of the substance of the Father in eternity past, and we had ample evidence to show from the Bible that, he, that Jesus is God and that he has always been and there were some clear statements from Ellen White as well. Here's what anti-Trinitarians say about the Holy Spirit. So again, just so it's very clear, this is not what I believe, this is what they teach, just so we're clear on this. They say that the Father and the Son are distinct beings, while the Holy Spirit is not a being. Now, this becomes a little bit confusing because they can't deny Ellen White's statement about there being three living persons or personalities of the heavenly trio. So what they say is that there are three persons or personalities, but only two beings. Now, that's not very good math. Um, you know, we're not talking about calculus or physics or anything like that. We're talking about one, two, three. And they say three persons, but two beings. So that becomes a bit challenging to explain, but that's what at least some of them say. Now, there is a bit of a difference between some of the camps about how they define the Holy Spirit. Some believe that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit that exists between the Father and the Son. They call it their Holy Spirit. Um, others believe that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus Christ who is limited in bodily form now. So the Holy Spirit is actually Jesus in spirit form, and then Jesus in bodily form is up in heaven. So, some two different views there, but they agree that the Holy Spirit is not a being. It's just um, a presence of either the Father and the Son combined or of Jesus in spirit form. They believe that the current view in the Seventh-day Adventist Church on the Holy Spirit and the Trinity is Roman Catholic and unbiblical. Now, I should probably mention 
that the Catholics teach that the Holy Spirit is a, the third person of the Godhead, but they teach that the Holy Spirit emanates out of the Father and emanates out of the Son. So ironically, that's actually closer to what anti-Trinitarians believe than what Seventh-day Adventists believe. So go figure on that. Because Seventh-day Adventists, as a, as a church body, we do not believe that the Holy Spirit emanates out of the Father and out of the Son the way Catholics teach. We believe that the Holy Spirit is its own distinct being. But, and then what they say is that Ellen White, this is again anti-Trinitarians, they say that Ellen White warned that Dr. John Harvey Kellogg's teachings in the book Living Temple contain the Alpha of Heresies, and we agree with that, that's true. The, the Living Temple contained the Alpha of Heresies, we call it panentheism, that God was in everything. They believe that the current view in the Seventh-day Adventist Church on the Holy Spirit is the omega of apostasy, because... They believe that what Kellogg taught in the book Living Temple led to where Seventh-day Adventists are today, and so it's the Omega of apostasy. And they urge a return to the pioneer view of the Godhead. So let's just look a little bit of, at some history here. And some of this I got from a really helpful article at, at vindicate.com. It was re written July 30, 2017 by Lemuel Sapien, he's a friend of mine, and it's um, entitled A Historical Analysis of the Trinity in Seventh-day Adventism. And here's what you'll see when you actually look at the history. So now I've moved from what anti-Trinitarians teach to just looking at um, an objective view of Seventh-day Adventist history. Now William Miller, who never became a Seventh-day Adventist, he was an early Adventist preacher. He preached the second advent of Jesus, but he was a Baptist. And he was also Trinitarian. William Miller was not um, anti-Trinitarian. He believed in three persons of the Trinity. Now, during this time, the Christian Connection joined forces, or many of them from the Christian Connection joined forces and formed a prominent part of the Millerite movement. Now, the Christian Connection as a church, as a denomination, was anti-Trinitarian. And 100 Christian Connection churches joined the Millerite movement. So the Millerite movement had a lot of people that joined forces that came from an anti-Trinitarian understanding of Christianity. Among these were Joshua Himes, James White, and Joseph Bates. They came from the Christian Connection. Now, Joshua Himes never became a Seventh-day Adventist, but he was basically the general manager of the Millerite movement and helped William Miller's preaching to become more strategic as far as the locations that he went, and he started all of the, the newspapers leading up until 1844. So Joshua Himes was anti-Trinitarian, but his close associate William Miller was not. James White was anti-Trinitarian, um, but the woman that he married, Ellen White, came from the Methodist background, and she was not anti-Trinitarian. And then Joseph Bates was also um, part of this movement. So there was certainly an anti-Trinitarian influence in the early Seventh-day Adventist history, and James White and Joseph Bates were founding leaders of the Seventh-day Adventist church. So that's where a lot of that influence comes from. But for people to say that all of the pioneers were anti-Trinitarian is actually not correct. Many of them were, but not all of them were. So just keep that in mind. So when we talk about the pioneer view of the Godhead, they did not have a united view on the Godhead um, if you're taught otherwise. So we'll see what some of the pioneers also said later on here. Now, I'm going to quote, this is regarding John Harvey Kellogg and his view of the Trinity, this is a letter written by A.G. Daniels. You'll see the reference on the next page. It was written by A.G. Daniels, who was General Conference President for many years. He wrote this letter to Willie White in October 29 of 1903. This is while Ellen White is still alive. So this is A.G. Daniels describing his encounter with Dr. Kellogg. He then stated that his former views regarding the Trinity, that the Trinity is a false doctrine, had stood in the way 
of making a clear and absolutely correct statement, that, but that within a short time he had come to believe in the Trinity and could now see pretty clearly where all the difficulty was and believe that he could clear the matter up satisfactorily. So the anti-Trinitarians go to town with this. They're like saying, see, Dr. Kellogg was anti-Trinitarian, but he became Trinitarian, and that led him to develop the alpha of apostasy. And now notice what he says here. He, he goes on to say, this is, this is Daniel's describing what Kellogg says. He told me that he now believed in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. And his view was that it was God the Holy Ghost and not God the Father that filled all space and every living thing. He said that if he had believed this before writing the book, he could have expressed his views without giving the wrong impression the book now gives. So notice carefully, he does say, oh yeah, I believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the way Seventh-day Adventists today describe the Trinity or the Godhead. But notice how he describes the Holy Ghost, and this is the panentheism that's coming through here that we do not believe, and that is, as he says that, that God the Holy Ghost filled all space and every living thing. That includes the trees and the grass and the plants and things of that nature. And the anti-Trinitarians are saying, see, that's panentheism. Now, here is the interesting thing. I read a statement to you yesterday by E.J. Wagner in his book Christ and His Righteousness from pages 21 and 22 where he teaches that Christ proceeded out of the substance from the Father in eternity past. And you know what happened to E.J. Wagner? He was on a book committee that reviewed the book The Living Temple and he voted in favor of the book Living Temple being published by the Review and Herald. So his anti-Trinitarian position didn't protect him from the alpha of apostasy that Kellogg presented. That's kind of ironic. But let's just look now a little bit here at this Kellogg and panentheism that we're looking at here. So th this goes on. This is actually a letter from J.H. Kellogg to W.W. Prescott in 1903. He says, the difference is this. When we say God is in the tree, the word God is understood in, in that the Godhead is in the tree. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Whereas... The proper understanding, so this is Dr. Kellogg speaking here, whereas the proper understanding in order that wholesome conception should be preserved in our minds is that God the Father sits upon his throne in heaven where God the Son is also, while God's life or spirit or presence is the all-pervading power which is carrying out the will of God in all the universe. Now, this is interesting to me because when I look at that, that sounds a lot like what anti-Trinitarians teach about the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is simply the all-pervading power which is carrying out the will of God in all the universe. Now, some say that the Holy Spirit is Jesus Christ in spirit form. Others say that it's the Father and Son in spirit form. But either way, it's essentially saying that it's this power that's carrying out the will of God in all the universe. That's panentheism. Now, I'm going to read to you a statement now from a, an, a young man living in Australia. His name is Joel Ridgway. He had been anti-Trinitarian, and now he accepts the biblical position of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And he's reflecting on Kellogg's views here. He says, what Kellogg really did was just take what many of the pioneers believed to its logical conclusion. If the Holy Spirit is the power of God, and that power is in us and in creation, then we have God in us, and the trees have God in them. The pioneers really had no ammunition against his teachings, and many of them accepted it at first. That's why it was such a deceptive teaching for people at that time. But Ellen White came up with the right ammunition. She said that the Holy Spirit is a distinct person, not a power or influence. It's interesting when you look at the dates of Ellen White's statements referring to the Holy Spirit as a person, they appear at the same time that Kellogg started preaching his false theories. And then he asked the question, is that a coincidence? Likely not. So while the anti-Trinitarians try to say that the current view on the Trinity or the Godhead in the Seventh-day Adventist Church is the omega of apostasy. The irony is, is that their belief is much more similar to what Kellogg taught than they'd like to admit. And what we believe as Seventh-day Adventists is not what Kellogg taught. We do not believe that the Holy Spirit is in the trees and the flowers and the grass. That is not 
our understanding of the Holy Spirit. So anti-Trinitarians believe that John Harvey Kellogg's conversion to Trinitarianism is clear evidence that a belief in the Trinity as defined by Seventh-day Adventists is the omega of apostasy. In reality, their view of the Holy Spirit as a presence fits right in with the omega of apostasy that Dr. Kellogg taught. So they accuse us of promoting the omega of apostasy. And look, there's lots of different people who come out and say that the latest heresy is the omega. So be careful about that. But Ellen White does say that it will be startling in nature, that books of a new order will be written, that the Sabbath will be lightly regarded, that they'll go into the cities and do a great work. Um, so don't fall for this anti-Trinitarian deception that the, the current Seventh-day Adventist view is the omega of apostasy. If anything, we can expect it to involve spiritualism and a lowering of the theological foundation of our main core beliefs of Seventh-day Adventists, the Sabbath, the sanctuary, state of the dead, spirit of prophecy, the Sabbath, sanctuary, all of those things. If you see a movement in the church that is downplaying the importance of the spirit of prophecy and of the Sabbath and of 1844 and things of that nature and just say, let's have a social gospel and go into the city and do good work for people, that would be more in line with the Omega rather than what they're saying it is. Now, let's look at some pioneer views in favor of the Trinity, because anti-Trinitarians say, let's go back to the pioneer view. Well, okay, let's look at some other pioneers. This is G.B. Starr. He was a church leader. This is written in the Union Conference Record, December 31, 1906. He says, we fear that many have tried to receive the Holy Spirit as an emotion or an influence when according to his name and position given him by Jesus in, in introducing him to the disciples, he should be received as a person. Now, realize I'm not quoting these individuals as inspired commentary. I'm just giving you a historical reference to show that not all pioneers were anti-Trinitarian. That's all I'm showing you here. This is not inspired evidence. We're going to look at the inspired statements a little bit later on. Here's another statement by R.A. Underwood, Review and Herald, November 21, 1907. He says, A personal Holy Ghost in charge of the work of grace under God and Christ as their representative and appointed agent to accomplish the work of regeneration of man's soul, body, and spirit will be discounted and made to appear only as an influence. When faith in the trio of the Godhead is destroyed and the one delegated with authority to resist and conquer man's foe is rejected as not, we are left to the cruel buffetings of Satan with no power to resist our adversary. So again, that's very clear. He's speaking against teaching that the Holy Spirit is simply an influence. And then R. Hare, Union Conference Record, July 19, 1909, says, from the confusing idea of one God and three gods and three gods and one God, the unexplainable dictum of theology, the enemy gladly leads to what appears to be a more rational, though no less erroneous idea, that there is no trinity and that Christ is merely a created being. But God's great plan is clear and logical. There is a trinity, and in it there are three personalities. These divine persons are closely associated in the work of God. Now, by the way, Ellen White was still alive at this time, and she never wrote a testimony denouncing this as the Omega of apostasy. Just to point that out. So one more, I believe, or a couple more, but Stephen and Haskell, he's probably a name that's a bit more familiar than the names that I just read for you, but he wrote the book The Cross and Its Shadow on the Sanctuary. He also wrote books on Daniel and Revelation. This is written in Bible Training School 1910. The Holy Spirit is represented in the Bible as one of the Trinity. Of the Holy Spirit, Christ said that it proceedeth from the Father, and he shall testify of me. In many instances in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is spoken of by the use of the personal pronoun he and his. From this, we would conclude that the Holy Spirit has a personality. It is evident that the Holy Spirit is one of the Trinity and fully represents God. So he's a, a pretty prominent pioneer. Now, notice the Star, Underwood, Hare, and Haskell statements all occur while Ellen White was still alive, and none were denounced as heresy. Furthermore, and I mentioned this, E.J. Wagner joined the Kellogg apostasy and favored the book Living Temple. He was a semi-Arian and not a Trinitarian, so his Godhead views did not spare him from joining the Alpha of apostasy. So... 
being anti-Trinitarian had nothing to do with protecting people from the alpha of apostasy. And in fact, what Kellogg taught about the Holy Spirit being a pervading power or presence in all living things would almost fit more with an anti-Trinitarian perspective. Not exactly, but it's more related than how we understand the Holy Spirit. So now I'm gonna, now that we've dealt with some of those things, let's go to the Bible. And, you know, so I'm a doctor, so this is what I usually do. I see a patient, we talk about what the problem was, why they have the problem, how it happened, what it means, what it can do. And then my favorite part after we get through that part is to talk about how the problem's going to be solved and what the truth is to it. And so now we're going to look about at the truth of the Holy Spirit. So go to John 16, 13, and it's up on the slide as well. It says, How be it, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he shall guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. So notice, the Holy Spirit is going to guide us into all truth. And I'm here to tell you today that the Holy Spirit is not going to lead us into error when it comes to our understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is going to guide us into truth when it comes to an understanding of who he is. And I still believe that we are part of the remnant church of Bible prophecy, and I don't believe that God would allow his remnant church to be led astray as an organized body in our understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. I believe that the Holy Spirit has led our church to a clear understanding of the third person of the Godhead. Now, I'm going to mention this. This was one of the individuals who was on the video yesterday that I played about. They were saying that the worshiping of, of Jesus as God is idolatry. After he converted to anti-Trinitarianism, he said, if I am an error, it is God who led me here. Listen, friends, the Holy Spirit does not lead us into error. Now, of course, he didn't believe he was an error, but he said, if I'm an error, it's God who led me here. That's what fanaticism looks like. That's a clear picture of fanaticism. And when you reach the point where you think that worshiping Jesus as God is idolatry, that's what fanaticism looks like. And we as Seventh-day Adventists are encouraged and instructed to stay away from such deceptions. So now we're going to look at some further biblical evidence to show you that the Holy Spirit is God. So turn to Acts chapter 5 verses 3 and 4. Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4 gives a very nice picture of the Holy Spirit being God. This is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Notice what it says. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Well, as it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own power? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied unto men, but unto who? Unto God. Now, in verse 3, he said, you have lied to the Holy Ghost. And in verse 4, he says, you've lied to God. So, this is a clear picture from Scripture that the Holy Ghost is God. Because Peter unquestionably equates the Holy Ghost to God. Ananias lied to the Holy Ghost. And it says, you didn't lie to men, but you lied unto God. So that's a clear analogy there. So that one Bible verse makes it very clear that the Holy Ghost is God. Now, how long has the Holy Spirit been around? Hebrews 9.14, this is a nice verse. Hebrews 9 is talking really about a number of things referring to the sacrificial service and of how Christ's sacrifice is better. But the Holy Spirit shows up in Hebrews 9. Verse 14, where it says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, you know, I learned things from talking to fellow brothers and sisters, and I liked what one of you told me after the presentation yesterday. And actually, I was talking to Pastor Finley about this as well. 
you know, if Jesus isn't eternal, then he can't really guarantee eternal life. And here's why. If you say that Jesus proceeded out of the substance of the Father a hundred trillion years ago, then the best that he could guarantee you is how long he's existed from eternity past because he's the one that died to offer you eternal life. So if Jesus was the one sent from the Father to die for us, but Jesus hasn't even existed through all of eternity, how can then he offer us eternal life himself? And the same is true of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the eternal spirit. So the one thing I'll say, you know, God will allow heresies to come in when we're sleeping. The one thing I'll say for myself as I studied out the theology of the, the Godhead and the Trinity for myself is I appreciate how it's given me a deeper appreciation for the eternal nature of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and of what that means for my own personal salvation. So I've personally been blessed and strengthened in my understanding of the Godhead, but it's sad that heresy has come in. So here we see from Scripture that in Acts 5, 3, and 4, the Holy Spirit is God. Hebrews 9, 14, he is eternal. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, shows that the Godhead was present at creation because it says God spoke by his Son, whom he, by whom he made all things. And in Genesis 1, 2, it says that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters at creation. Um, and so we see that the Godhead, the Trinity, they were all present at creation. And we also see that the Holy Ghost was present at the time of the conception of Christ. Luke 1, 35, the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. So the conception of Christ came through the power of the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Ghost. And so... I've heard some people teach that the Holy Spirit didn't come into existence until Pentecost. That's one of the variations of anti-Trinitarianism. Not all of them believe that. But here we see that the Holy Ghost was responsible for the conception of Christ. Then we see that the Godhead was present at Jesus' baptism. Matthew 3, 16 and 17, Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and, a, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So the Father says, This is my beloved Son. You see the Holy Spirit, like the form of a dove present, and Jesus is there being baptized. Now, God, the Godhead and the work of salvation. Matthew 28, 19. These are the words of Jesus. Jesus says, Go ye therefore and teach or make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So when we baptize, when we, baptize we baptize in the name of the heavenly trio, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Do you realize that there are anti-Trinitarians that try to discredit the validity of this verse? And they say, we just baptize in the name of Jesus based on a verse from Acts. Well, it may just be that in the book of Acts, that the writer of Acts, which we believe is Luke, happened to just mention in passing that the person was baptized in the name of Jesus. But Jesus said to his disciples, when you baptize, you baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Now, when you wish that a verse was not in the Bible, that should raise red flags about your theological position. Wow, oh, that doesn't fit with what I believe. I wish, maybe, maybe that verse was planted by the Jesuits. I, I mean, and then how far are you going to go? Well, then how do I not know that you're a Jesuit? I mean, when you start to think in that kind of a conspiratorial type of way, and if there was a Jesuit plant that, I, I shouldn't even say any more about that. It, you get my point. But if you wish that Matthew 28, 19 wasn't in the Bible, man, that's, 
Jesus' admonition, go ye therefore and teach, and really it's to make disciples of all nations. That's sometimes a problem we have in the church where we baptize members, but they don't become disciples. And we're not simply to be making members, we're to be making disciples. And when we baptize, we baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Let's keep going here. I like this concept as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, this is something that we often hear when we're trying to prove a point that we need two or three witnesses. And Paul is writing this, he's saying, this is the third time I am coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. Now what Paul is saying here in the immediate context is that he came to the church of Corinth in person. That's the first witness. His second witness was the first epistle to the church of Corinth, known as 1 Corinthians. And his third witness is the second epistle to the Corinthians, known as 2 Corinthians. And this is his final chapter, so he's bringing this epistle to a close, and he's saying, this is the third time I am coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. So he's saying, you at least need two witnesses to establish a point. But this is the third time I'm coming to you. And then he closes the whole book in verse 14 of the same chapter, and he describes the Godhead or the Trinity. Notice this, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. Now, this is something that I find to be very powerful. Each member of the Godhead has two witnesses to testify of the other. Now, you may not have been listening so far. It's all been whatever, but this is a basic Bible truth that if you don't get anything else from this seminar today, I want you to get this point. So if you're sleeping from your lunch nap, that's okay, but wake up now and get this point. There are two witnesses for every other member of the Godhead. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. And Scripture says of Jesus, Jesus is the Word. I and my Father are one, and the Holy Spirit represents them. So here we have the Father, and He has the Son and the Holy Spirit to bear witness of Him. Then you have Jesus, and He has the Father and the Holy Spirit to bear witness of Him. And you have the Holy Spirit, who has the Father and the Son to bear witness of Him. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. So if you only have two... If you have Jesus and the Father, then you only have one witness. And so it's not a coincidence that when Paul says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established at the beginning of the chapter, he closes the chapter by saying, let me remind you of the best illustration of what two or three witnesses establishing the other looks like, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Now let's keep moving here. 1 John 5, 7, this is another verse that some wish was not in the Bible, and some say that it's not. This is the verse that says, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. This passage is called the Johannine Comma. It's found in the Textus Receptus, for which the King James Version is based on, but it's not found in the majority of Greek manuscripts, but it is found in the majority of Latin manuscripts. Now, there's a scholar named Dr. Thomas Newton. He wrote a book entitled Crowned with Glory, and he has a very interesting point about the validity of 1 John 5, 7. He says, the strongest evidence for this verse is found in the Greek text itself. Looking at 1 John 5, 8, there are three nouns which in Greek stand in the neuter, spirit, water, and blood. However, they are followed by a participle that is masculine. The Greek phrase here is oi martyrantis, who bear witness. Those who know the Greek language understand this to be poor grammar if left to stand on its own. Even more noticeably, verse 6 has the same participle but stands in the neuter. Now, you may be wondering where this is going, but notice this. He says, why are three neuter nouns supported with a masculine part participle? The answer is found if we include verse 7. There we have two masculine nouns, father and son, followed by a neuter noun, spirit. The verse also has the Greek masculine participle, oi martyrantis. With this clause introducing verse 8, it is very proper for the participle in verse 8 to be masculine because of the masculine nouns in verse 7. But if verse 7 were not there, it would become improper Greek grammar. 
So if you understand Greek and proper Greek grammar, it makes perfect sense that verse 7 would be there, but some try to use manuscripts as an excuse to say that 1 John 5, 7 shouldn't be in the Bible, when in reality it very clearly fits with what the rest of Scripture teaches. And I believe that 1 John 5, 7 does belong in the Bible. Now, Manuscript 21, 1906. Now we're going to look at Ellen White and what she says about the Holy Spirit. This is one of the clear statements, Manuscript 21, 1906. The comforter that Christ promised to send after he ascended to heaven is the Spirit in all the fullness of the Godhead, making manifest the power of divine grace to all who receive and believe in Christ as, an, as a personal Savior. And here's the famous statement. There are three living persons of the heavenly trio. In the name of these three great powers, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, those who receive Christ by living faith are baptized, and these powers will cooperate with the obedient subjects of heaven in their efforts to live the new life in Christ. So notice this anti-Trinitarian say, we only baptize in the name of Christ based on the book of Acts. But Ellen White says that we should baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit the way Jesus did, because guess what? Ellen White's the testimony of Jesus. So, there are three living persons of the heavenly trio. There's no way to get around that. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I'm thankful that when I need help, that the power of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are at my back to help me in whatever crisis I'm facing. Now, the next statement I'm going to read is from Evangelism 6.16, found in Manuscript 66.18.99. We need to realize that the Holy Spirit, who is as much a person as God is a person, is walking through these grounds. Now, you may recognize that the fundamental belief statement makes reference to, that when it, reference to this statement when it describes the Holy Spirit. So here we see from these two statements that we've looked at, it makes it clear that, number one, there are three living persons of the heavenly trio, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Point number two, the Holy Spirit is as much a person as God is a person. Now I'm going to read to you another, the next statement I'm going to read is a favorite statement of anti-Trinitarians. This is letter 66, 1894, and they often share this one statement isolated from the rest of her writings. Here she says, the Lord is soon to come. We want that complete and perfect understanding which the Lord alone can give. It is not safe to catch the Spirit from another. We want the Holy Spirit, which is Jesus Christ. And see, they're like, see, the Holy Spirit is Jesus Christ. We've made our point. But the very next statement I'm going to show you, Manuscript Releases, Volume 2324, says, the Holy Spirit is the comforter in Christ's name. He, the Holy Spirit, personifies Christ yet is a distinct personality. Now, remember, Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and my Father are one. Now, some who may be deluded could use that verse to say, oh, Jesus is simply the Father in bodily form. But that's not what Jesus meant. He's saying that we have the same Spirit. We are of the same character, of the same mind. But they're distinct beings, distinct persons. The same thing here. Ellen White, when she says, we want the Holy Spirit, which is Jesus Christ, she's simply saying that the Holy Spirit is identical to the character of Jesus. We want the Holy Spirit, which is Jesus Christ. If you have the Holy Spirit in your life, you will have the character of Christ. When you have the fruits of the Spirit in your life, you will have the character of Jesus. It's not that difficult to put these ideas together. Signs of the Times, April 3, 1884. The Holy Spirit exalts and glorifies the Savior. It is his office to present Christ the great salvation that we have through him and the sacred elevated purity of his righteousness. Says Christ, he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. The Spirit of truth is the only effectual teacher of divine truth. Those who are taught of him have entered the school of Christ how God must esteem the race that he gave his son to die for them and appoints his spirit to be man's teacher and continual guide. So some further evidence there to see that you see that the Holy Spirit has an office to present Christ. 
And here we see in letter 13 to 1894, thank God that the world's Redeemer promised that if we went away, he would send the, the Holy Spirit as his representative. Let us pray and grasp the rich promises of God that in proportion to our earnest humble supplications, the Holy Spirit will be appointed to meet our needs. If we seek God with all our heart, we shall find and obtain the fulfillment of the promise. So here we see that the Holy Spirit is Christ's representative. Another statement, volume 2 of Manuscript Releases, page 36, the Father hath given us his Son for us, that through the Son the Holy Spirit might come to us and lead us to the Father. This is this his divine agency. We have the spirit of intercession whereby we may plead with God as a man pleadeth with his friend. So those are some statements from the Spirit of Prophecy about the Holy Spirit. Now, as you might imagine and you may have heard, there are some anti-Trinitarian attacks on the spirit of prophecy. They claim that Leroy Froome tampered with the writings of Ellen White relating to what she said about the Holy Spirit when compiling the book Evangelism. So if you try to share any statements about the Holy Spirit that are found in the book of Evangelism, they won't accept those statements because they say that because Leroy Froome, and it's true, he helped to compile the book Evangelism, they say that he misconstrues her meaning and you can't trust what is said in the book of evangelism. By the way, though, that statement, there are three living persons in the heavenly tree, that, that's not original to the book of evangelism. The book of evangelism is a compilation and you can actually look up all of those statements in evangelism from their original source. Now, we're going to talk about Freeman a little bit later. He may have made mistakes in other areas, such as questions on doctrine. We're going to talk about that on Thursday. But the original sources for evangelism on the Holy Spirit are accurate. So when we start to say that I can't trust the book Evangelism because Froome compiled the book, then we're starting to attack the spirit of prophecy and the testimony of Jesus because her writings don't fit my narrative of what I want to believe about the Holy Spirit. This is rather ironic, especially when you consider this statement from Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 48. It's written in 1890 from Letter 12. The very last deception of Satan will be to make of none effect the testimony of the Spirit of God. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Satan will work ingeniously in different ways and through different agencies to unsettle the confidence of God's remnant people in the true testimony. Now let me say this. It's not just the anti-Trinitarians through whom Satan is working to undermine confidence in the testimonies of the Spirit of God. You can find it among the left wing of so-called progressive Adventism who will cherry-pick which parts of Ellen White they want to believe as well. That's true. But when you as a movement, namely the anti-Trinitarians, are primarily using the spirit of prophecy to promote your ideas about Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and you diminish them from their proper place in the Godhead, and yet you refuse to accept some of her clear statements, um, it's rather ironic that you're joining the wrong team in undermining the effect of the testimony of the Spirit of God. It's my settled conviction that Satan is working through the anti-Trinitarian movement to unsettle God's people and their confidence in the spirit of prophecy. Claiming that Ellen White's writings have been tampered with shows that they have departed from the faith and are giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Now, I'm going to read a statement from Councils on Health, page 222. The Godhead was stirred with pity for the race, and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit gave themselves. Notice, it's all three. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit gave themselves to the working out of the plan of redemption. In order fully to carry out this plan, it was decided that Christ, the only begotten Son of God, should give himself an offering for sin. What line can measure the depth of this love? God would make it impossible for man to say that he could have done more. With Christ he gave all the resources of heaven that nothing might be wanting in the plan for man's uplifting. And the quote goes on. Powerful statement there, but here you see in the beginning of the statement, it was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who gave themselves to the working out of the plan of redemption. That's three. 
not to you. Volume 6 of the Testimonies, page 99. The fact that you have been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is an assurance that if you will claim their help, these powers will help you in every emergency. All three of them will help you in every emergency. I like that. I like knowing that all three powers are there to help me in every emergency. Selected Messages, Volume 1344. Christ, our Mediator, and the Holy Spirit are constantly interceding on man's behalf. But the Spirit pleads not for us as does Christ, who presents his bloodshed from the foundation of the world. The Spirit works upon our hearts, drawing out prayers and penitence, praise and thanksgiving. The gratitude which flows from our lips is the result of the Spirit striking the chords of the soul in holy memories, awakening the music of the heart. So here we see that there's a distinction in the type of intercession that Christ and the Holy Spirit are doing. So you can't tell me that the Holy Spirit is Jesus Christ. He has his own work to do. He represents Christ, but he also has a special work designated to him as well. Now this next one is found in Manuscript 139, 1906. This is Ellen White speaking. This is a transcription of her sermon. She says, now a little point, as the saints in the kingdom of God are accepted in the beloved, they hear, come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then the golden harps are touched, and the music flows all through the heavenly host, and they fall down and worship the father and the son and the Holy Spirit. You know, I've heard some say that if you worship the Holy Spirit, you're actually worshiping Satan. That's how far things go. We heard yesterday that they say if you worship Jesus as God, that that's idolatry. And now some are saying that if you worship the Holy Spirit, you're actually worshiping Satan. God alone is worthy of worship, and so clearly the Holy Spirit is God. But, I mean, that's, again, if you want to go back to the pioneers, they never went to the lengths that current anti-Trinitarians are going in their defense of anti-Trinitarianism. That was a viewpoint that some had, but they didn't call it the Omega of apostasy. They didn't say you would be lost, and they didn't say you were worshiping Satan. So it's a deception, and it's causing dissension and discord among many Seventh-day Adventists. So just to review some of the deceptions, some anti-Trinitarians believe that worshiping Jesus or the Holy Spirit is breaking the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me, because they believe the Father is the only true God and that we have one Lord Jesus Christ. But just a reminder, Jeremiah 10.10 teaches that the Lord is the true God, he is the living God and an everlasting king. So the Father is God, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and all are worthy of worship. Anti-Trinitarians claim that their view of the Godhead is necessary in order to experience righteousness by faith and to receive the latter rain. Sadly, they have fallen into the tramp of many other fanatical movements, so they've fallen into the trap of many other fanatical movements, such as the 2520 movement, feast-keeping, lunar Sabbaths, date-setting, the church triumphant movement. If you don't know what some of those things are, that's good, but you probably want to be aware. I'm going to talk about those things tomorrow, um, date-setting, the church triumphant movement with Jeff Pippinger, 2520, all of that stuff. And there's a common theme with each of these movements, and that is we have new light for God's last day church. This is the missing magic bullet that the church hasn't accepted. And when you accept this idea, then Jesus will come. All the while missing that what Jesus needs is not more intellectual knowledge, as good as that may be, although this is error. It's good to fill our minds with truth, but what God really needs are people who have surrendered hearts. So let me read to you the statement from Manuscript Releases, Volume 9, page 27. God is raising up a class to give the loud cry of the third angel's message. Of your own soul shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Now, stop right there and let me just make a comment on this. 
These are men that have arisen from within the church in many cases who are speaking perverse things, and in essence what they are doing is they are drawing disciples away after them. They're not leading people to follow the true Jesus of Scripture. They're getting people to follow them as false teachers as part of a false movement. It is Satan's object now to get up new theories to divert the mind from the true work and genuine message for this time. He stirs up minds to give false interpretation of Scripture, a spurious loud cry that the real message may not have its effect when it does come. This is one of the greatest evidences that the loud cry will soon be heard and the earth lightened with the glory of God. So, you know, I'm annoyed by these false movements, but the one thing that gives me courage is that this is one of the signs that the real loud, real loud cry is about to be given. There really will be a loud cry that will lighten the earth with the glory of God, but let me tell you something. The loud cry is not going to be a, a message that says Jesus is not God. The loud cry full of the power of the Holy Spirit with latter rain power is not going to be a message that says the Holy Spirit is not a person. That is not the loud cry message. The loud cry message is a demonstration of the righteousness of God in which the fruits of the Holy Spirit are seen in the hearts and the lives of God's last day people. Well, the earth will not simply hear a proclamation of the righteousness of God. They will see a demonstration. And it will be a demonstration of the righteousness of Christ, which Romans 1.17 says is the righteousness of God. Because Christ is God. And the earth will see what it means for a people to be full of the character of God. Because the Holy Spirit, as the third person of the Godhead, has taken control of their lives. That's the real loud cry message. That's what we need to be praying for. And you're not going to gain that experience of having the fruits of the Spirit by accepting this false teaching and then going into the churches where you're fighting with everyone, trying to convince the church that it's Babylon. You're going to find yourself in the wrong place in the last days, sad to say. Letter 240, 1903. Those who seek to define God are on forbidden ground. We are to enter into no controversy regarding God, what he is and what he is not. He, the omniscient one, is above discussion. Those who express such sentiments regarding him show that they are departing from the faith. And I've said that earlier. I believe that this movement, they are departing from the faith. And I want to show you another verse because, you know, sometimes it may come to be that someone in your church will say, hey, I have some light. Would you like to have a study with me? Can you sit down and talk with me? Now, if you're one of the elders of the church or you're the pastor of the church and you have to confront someone, you may be forced to deal with this issue. But if you don't have to deal with these people, do not deal with them. And I have biblical authority to state this. Romans 16, 17. Now, I beseech you, brethren... Mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. The Bible says stay away from people who are teaching false doctrines and causing divisions in your church. Don't think that you need to hear everybody out to make your own mind up. Stay away from their meetings and disfellowship those in your church who are agitating this issue. Ellen White says in early writings 124, God is displeased with us when we go to listen to error without being obliged to go. For unless he sends us to those meetings where error is forced home to the people by the power of the will, he will not keep us. And you see the rest of the statement. The angels don't keep watching over us. So closing thoughts, let us not be confused over such basic Bible doctrine and clearly defined truths. Let us focus on receiving the Holy Spirit so that we will receive the true latter rain. May we be part of God's closing work in which the third person of the Godhead fills our lives so we can illuminate the earth with the glory of God's character. And may the Holy Spirit convict us of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. Last couple of slides briefly, just a reminder, this book on the Trinity by Glenn Parfit is an excellent resource. We're going to transition away now from the Godhead Trinity issue to confusion on prophecy tomorrow with date setting 2520. 
some of that stuff. And just as a reminder, as I wrap up here, I do have a book on Daniel that's coming out. It's going to be published by Remnant Publications in the next few weeks. So be on the lookout for that. I think you'll enjoy the study of that. So why don't we go ahead and, and close with prayer. Father, we thank you for being with us today. And as we've addressed the Trinity issue the last two days, I pray that this has brought some clarity of understanding of who Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit is, that we have three members of the heavenly tree, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are all persons, who are all beings, and we can worship them in spirit and in truth. May we not be deceived. May we be faithful and found ready when you come. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.